right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Crypto 101 podcast. Uh, my name is Bryce. You guys know me. I am today not joined by your favorite of the duo, Mr. Aaron Pizzamine Malone. Uh, Aaron is at physical therapy. Uh, poor guy. He, he, he's really, uh, you know, really working on his posture. And he's the guy just builds miners and podcasts and trades all day. So I think it's a little bit of a bad back, but he's going to be back in shape in no time. But today I'm joined by uh, another fantastic uh, counterpart here uh, that we could speak to today, Alex Ship who is from Offshift, who this, he's the chief strategy officer. And we're going to bring Alex in to talk about uh, not only decentralized finance and crypto, but something him and his team are donning, PriFi, private DeFi. So uh, Alex, welcome to the Crypto 101 podcast. Oh, thank you, Bryce. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we, we, uh, we, we couldn't be more excited. Uh, and, and this is one of my favorite topics and, and Pizza Mind's favorite topics. So I wish he was here, but I know he's going to be watching the recording. Um, now, let's just uh, zoom out real quick before we dive into PriFi. Uh, let's talk about you. Um, Alex, who are you and, and, and why are you the right guy to be leading strategy for such a bold initiative? Well, uh, <laughs> I guess I'll start with a little bit of my story. Um, I will say that we do have quite quite a collection of, of really brilliant people on our team and then also our partners as well. Um, uh, my basis or sort of my my foundation or how I sort of stumbled into and found crypto started in, you know, my background's in finance. I studied finance uh, in school. And then I was working at, um, and I've told the story a couple of times in previous interviews as well, but I was working at a financial services firm that did consulting with bold bracket banks and they specialized in distressed debt. So if those banks had loans out that, where the loan recipients, uh, the debtors, weren't going to be able to repay those loans. Um, this company would then contact the banks and say, hey, you guys are going to be dealing with some distressed debt. Have us come on as a consulting unit, and uh, we'll help you get, get that fixed up. And so they would specialize in a certain macroeconomic sector that was experiencing a lot of distress. In the case when I was interning there, um, it was 2013, 2014, around that time. Actually, it might even be a little bit later. I think it was actually a couple of years later, but they were experiencing, um, they were focused on the exploration and production for oil companies that were drilling for oil and oil was tanking. So it was my job to go through a Bloomberg terminal because that loan data is public. And uh, you know to sort of look through and find the companies that were gonna be able to repay their debt. I found very quickly that all of the companies weren't gonna be able to repay their debt. Um, and it was- <laughs> That's not a good discovery. <laughs> It was explained to me politely um, uh, and patiently that we were just looking for companies that weren't able to service their debt. That means pay the interest. Um, and so that sort of set me off in, in sort of an uncomfortable place where I was like, you know, it kind of seems like financial interests literally own all of the companies in the world, which are just desperately trying to service their debt. And at the end of the loan term, they need to pay off the principal by getting what's called a bridge loan, which is where the, the, the bulge bracket bank, in this case, or the financial institution, pays or gives them a new loan to help them repay the principal from the previous loan. At a much <laughs> higher interest rate. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that can often happen. I mean, there and and if you know, so if you're not running the business in the way that uh, financial institutions like, you're you're really at risk of default constantly. Um, so it took me a few more years to really stumble onto crypto, but um, my entry into the space uh, came from one of of sort of monetary unease, so to speak, and it, it sort of led me to to go as deep as possible into what money is, 
um, and then what finances and, and sort of to determine for myself that we need a better system. In other words, most of the problems and ills with, with the world that we're living in are systemic ills. Um, and so we need to sort of um, not reimagine, but also rebuild, um, you know, our, our monetary and financial landscape from, from the ground up. So when I discovered Bitcoin and then progressively into Ethereum and then progressively into the role that privacy plays in our systems, um, it, it was certainly the right fit for me. So debt, right? That's, that's a big concept and it's rearing uh, its, its nasty, ugly head quite a bit again now, you know, as you know, we're recording this here end of March and things are, you know, in the sovereign debt world, uh, getting pretty sticky corporate debt. Do you have kind of a hot take on just what the geopolitical kind of landscape is and, and where this is taking, you know, these, these debt markets? Well, um, I'm certainly not going to make any any predictions, you know, off the cuff. Um, I think, though, anyone, you know, once you get involved in this, I mean, money is principally, um, it is uh, an organic emergent phenomenon. And so is credit for that matter. Um, and that means it operates on a sort of basis of a distributed intelligence that has to do with decisions that are made by economic agents at the individual level, uh, and they're aggregated in a sort of very natural process. Anytime there's any form of centralized control or any attempt by humans or by man to sort of um, guide or control these sorts of very complex processes, um, we destroy the systems that we built on them. Um, and so anytime like the, the institution of the Federal Reserve or central banks at all um, is, is inevitably going to lead to the kind of situation that we're finding ourselves in now. Um, it's kind of like blowing a lot of air into a balloon. It's really difficult to say where a particular bubble is going to emerge. People have already labeled this kind of massive bubble as the everything bubble. I don't think that's a bad term at all. It's hard to say, is it going to be the housing sector? Is it going to be student loan debt? Is it going to be, as you said, corporate debt? It's really hard to say. Um, Sovereign debt, right? With Russia defaulting on all of their loans and all of Russia's corporates who are saying, hey, you know, all of our contracts are debt denominated in dollars. We don't have any. You're getting rubles. Uh, yes, yes. I mean, and, and also, as you say, geopolitically and regionally, it's hard to say where this sort of thing like and, and you could look at Evergrande and the Chinese uh, real estate sector as well. Um, but I think the most important thing to realize is that it's when we focus on these, I mean, this is how government and centralized authorities function and how they continue to thrive, which is by focusing on localized specific issues and presenting themselves as being in a position to resolve them, um, which is where the ills or the problems are systemic and they require systemic and decentralized solutions. Um, so yeah, it's hard for me to say where things are going to melt down or explode first, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's on the way and you know, it, it will be pretty serious for a lot of people that aren't prepared. Mm. And, and just, you know, Again, nothing that we say is financial advice. This is purely educational in nature. But for as a guy, you know, who, who's specialized in, you know, trawling through, you know, Bloomberg terminals, looking at debt, I just flashing back to Michael Burry in the big short when he's going through his his two terminal and finding all these, uh, you know, bunk subprime mortgages. But, you know, to your point, you said, you know, the meltdown is going to happen. It's going to come in one shape or another from one market, whether it's sovereign debt or whatever. But but does that necessarily translate into, you know, uh, a 2008 type financial crisis? Does that translate into, uh, you know, a capitulation in the risk markets? Or do you think that it's something that could be contained? And again, you know, this is just all, you know, speculation and just conversational, but I, I think it's worth at least talking about. Yeah, um, I, I think, uh, you know, what's important to note is that people have been saying that US dollars will be used as toilet paper since like 1971, you know, 
And so one thing that I've learned is I'm 29 now, um, but you know, one thing I've learned from being in my 20s is that the world operates on longer time horizons than many of us are, are often familiar with, which is that you know, a 20-year investment or a 10-year investment for something, for, for someone who's, who's in their 20s is, is kind of unfathomable and difficult, difficult to conceptualize. Whereas a more experienced seasoned investor, simply by virtue of being alive longer, can say, okay, a 10-year investment. Or, or you know, there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of people calling for crises and there's a lot of you know, fear sells, you know, um, no matter which side totally. of it you're on. And um, yeah, I mean, again, certainly like once you institute the, the centralized controls, once you institute, um, once you kind of destroy the decentralized nature of, of money and credit and, and, fine, and markets, uh, you're setting the stage for some kind of implosion down the road. Like, absolutely. Uh, it, you're creating imbalances and those imbalances will need to correct. Um, in, in, in this case, um, again, I can't, I can't say where in particular. Um, but yeah, we, we are heading towards something that is, um, I mean, how it will unfold is, is another question, because I think that's what you're really getting at, which is, you know, what is the, what is the response that people will have? And there are these, there's kinds of um, Brent, I'm forgetting his name, but the dollar milkshake theory, if you're familiar with that. I'm um, not actually. Yeah, his, his, his point, because a lot of people are talking about this runaway inflation concept, which is certainly totally valid. And, um, you know, but of course, since all the debt of the world and his it's it's a it's a reference to the film, There Will Be Blood uh, with these oil, uh, these oil, you know, sort of tycoons. And one guy saying, you know, I will I don't care where you're you're setting up your your oil field. I will, you know, suck all the oil out from underground. That was sort of like like a milkshake with a straw. And that was he was sort of saying that all the liquidity of the world will, will go to the dollar. And his opinion is that as, as there's more runaway inflation as there's eventually there will be actually people will need to pay their debts and there will be a capital flight out of assets and back into dollars to pay those debts. Um, and so yeah, I think there's just, absolutely. yeah, it's so, so hard to predict. And anyone who says that they know what's going to happen next definitely doesn't. Uh, and anyone, <laughs> that's also a sign that you, you aren't fully grounded and objective as an investor, as a trader, or simply as a human being. So it, it's super, super difficult to say. I mean, I just think there's a lot of what I will say is that I think the amount of volatility that we've seen in markets since the establishment of the Federal Reserve and since like the widespread sort of establishment of central banking in general is totally unnatural. Um, and that because all these centralized kind of authorities distort real prices and, and real interest rates, right? By kind of fixing them arbitrarily, um, you distort, you know, true market principles. Uh, yeah, you do. And you create asset bubbles. Uh, and and again, their response will always be up. Oh, there's this this localized bubble. We need the government or we need some kind of you know, monetary management to be able to manage this, to handle this, to suppress this. But it's all coming back to the, the same problem is, is always at the beginning is the desire for control. And that's really what causes the volatility. So what I will say is that I think we're headed for very volatile times. Mm. And, and we're already seeing some very volatile times, whether it's with inflation or and, and you see it extend to the crypto market too. I think that's something really important to mention, which is that the crypto space is absolutely not immune uh, to the whims of central bankers, um, to um, you know, uh, all sorts of different uh, volatile marketplace and industries, like whether it's real estate markets or anything, anything that could cause capital flight, that could cause a, a bank run or anything could absolutely affect crypto assets uh, as well. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. 
Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real Traveler Reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. No, I think this this brings us to a really interesting kind of segue because you know, Bitcoin was born, you know, 2008 was the, when the white paper was authored, kind of in the heart of the darkness <laughs> of the financial crisis as this response to all of these, you know, people waking up to like, hey, you know, we're occupying Wall Street because these centralized authorities that got us into this problem are now getting bailed out. And so we need this decentralized alternative. And so, you know, Bitcoin was the first iteration of that. Now, then after that, we had, you know, Litecoin, which is kind of the same, just faster. We had Ethereum, which was kind of new, 2.0 type, you know, smart contracting. And, uh, you know, where, where does Offshift kind of fit into the picture? Um, are you guys building a new Bitcoin that's, you know, better, faster, more private? Are you guys building a, a platform to help people transact Bitcoin privately? Um, and kind of what's, what's the high level here? Well, I like <clears throat> I like what you sort of set up there, which is a nice the, the transition from Bitcoin to to Ethereum and like the DeFi landscape. Um, to elaborate on that a bit, I think you know it's really important to go through this. Um, and and I spoke about this at, at FCC um, in in July of last year. Uh, and it, it's really important to understand that a lot of people see fiat currency as some sort of perversion of money. In other words, a perversion of gold, and it's it's not really. It's really a perversion of credit. Uh, and, and the difference is that money is those units of actual value, and then credit are the IOUs, whatever you want to call them, bonds, their receipts, their claims to... Somebody um, else's liability. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's well said, yeah. Um, and so credit always emerges as a sort of flexible and versatile laminate that sits atop money because money and its inherent characteristics which make it suitable for exchange in particular its scarcity also requires some energy and transaction. And so credit is always cheaper to exchange and it also allows more versatile forms of exchange in the same way paper could be used for shares of stock. You can have mm -hmm. derivatives instruments, you can have insurance, uh, you can have all sorts of different products that money could never support alone. Yeah. Even today, gold is settled in cash, in other words, mm -hmm. paper. So 
Um, credit is not the problem in and of itself. The problem is that the issuance of credit is centralized. And we have these systems where credit is uh, really controlled by one issuing authority or a network of small issuing authorities, uh, which are all sort of beholden to that one central bank, that central issuing authority. So when we look at sort of like gold was sort of taken from its its place as this global monetary standard, not because, I mean, it was it was never exposed as being unscarce. It was that the system of credit on top of it had some issues. So right now we have like a really brilliant system where Bitcoin is a really sound money um, and, and in many ways more sound than gold. And I won't get into that argument, but um, Ethereum built on top of it for the first time, like this age old civilizational problem that exists, has existed for maybe millennia even, where now there's a way of conducting different sorts of credit applications, you know, credit transactions where you can loan and you can receive loans. Uh, you can have derivatives products. And, and again, you have insurance protocols and everything. It's really exciting. And it's all in decentralized format. So DeFi. <laughs> DeFi as it's called, decentralized finance. Um, and finance meet, referring to those credit instruments. So the issue is that all this is sort of taking place in the virtual domain. The virtual domain is the home, uh, is sort of the foundation for these applications. And uh, unfortunately in the virtual domain, data is very easy to collect. Copying and pasting it is essentially what's called rehypothecation. Rehypothecation is the process of creating another claim to a unit when the unit itself doesn't exist. And that's a problem we have with banks. Uh, that's a problem that we've had with centralized credit issuance over the years. And unfortunately, in the virtual domain now, as all you have to do is see data to be able to copy paste and essentially rehypothecate it. And that's what we see in the social media space, where Facebook and others, it's basically a meme at this point that Facebook or Meta is evil. Um, social media companies rehypothecate or take our data and sell it. They monetize our data. But most people don't know that for example, Robinhood literally monetizes your money. They look at your trades, they sell that data hedge funds, they make $700 million a year. It's a good, it's a great gig for them. Um, and in the same way, you have Chainalysis and Nansen and these on-chain data analytics companies, which are totally looking through all the Ethereum uh, transactions and ever, all the smart contracts on the blockchain and they're taking that data. Um, and so you have privacy from a humanitarian standpoint as a human right, and then you have this whole data economy emerging, where you have that Economist article from 2017, 2018, where data is now the world's most valuable commodity, more valuable than oil. And so we need to sort of bring privacy into the mix. Privacy is the key component that scarcity, uh, really privacy is scarcity in the digital domain. And so we need private decentralized finance. That's really the missing piece. And so PriFi is, is sort of the fitting, the fitting um, name there. Yeah, no, I love it. That's a really fantastic overview. And it tells us a little bit more about the nature of privacy as like kind of a fundamental human right, as opposed to just this thing that people are like, oh, you know, we want privacy to, to, to hide from the government, right? Like, no, it's, it's, it's part of it's part and parcel of, of our kind of human rights to not get leveraged by centralized authorities, essentially. Um, and so I like, you know, kind of reframing the narrative, you know, a lot, you know, a lot of the times people are like, oh, private cryptos are only for bad guys. It's like, yep. no, that's not the case. Private sort of ecosystems are for the sovereign individual who kind of wants to reclaim a little bit of ownership over their digital footprint. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of a, an interesting um, dichotomy. You know, people are always, you know, kind of naysaying. Uh, about privacy. How do you navigate that? Like, you know, do you get a lot of haters that say, oh, you guys are just building technology for bad guys? <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, that was super, super well said. Uh, one of the most eloquent, articulate uh, things I've heard said about privacy from, yeah, I mean, I would think you're in the privacy space somehow. Uh, <laughs> that, that was, uh, yeah, I you know, can't say enough. Um, yeah, I mean, as far as, I mean, there was a woman named Kathy Ho, who was one of the lead lawyers in the, um, uh, the Silk Road case. Um, ah. And uh, she, she, um, I forget if it was said during, uh, during. I, I believe it was just published or in some way. But ninety nine percent of fiat denominated money laundering goes unprosecuted. So that's a pretty huge number for us to pretty be staggering. Talking. It is staggering. Yeah, it is because. You know, it's it's kind of like, and this isn't commentary on gun laws or anything like that. Not not entering into that space, but it's kind of like someone being, you know, you you see someone inventing a new kind of knife, and you say, oh, that knife is dangerous; it could hurt people. It's like, well, but okay, but that's not really the primary method of of you know these kinds of uh, you know violence, uh, especially, um, you know. So I'm not even going to go near that topic. But if we're not if we're not really preventing people from conducting money laundering for illicit activities in fiat currency, then uh, targeting these kinds of blockchain-based privacy solutions doesn't even really make sense in the first place. Mm. And I mean, again, um, if we look recently, HSBC um, was recently revealed, I think, having laundered like hundreds of millions of dollars uh, for drug cartels, like yeah. knowingly, not even like it happened on this decentralized protocol and no one, I mean, they knowingly did it. Mm -hmm. And then now it's coming out that Credit Suisse did basically the same thing with, I think, even more money. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have banks like these, these top tier bullet bracket banks, which are already doing this stuff and basically don't even get slapped on the wrist and then get bailed out. And we're like, hey, look at that protocol over there. It doesn't, it, it doesn't make any sense at all from that perspective. Um, but I think if you get really into it philosophically and, and get away from, from the names and the numbers and everything, um, privacy is a really important, um, it's a really important piece. It allows for self-expression in a lot of ways. And, and just ask yourself, you know, the kinds of things, the way you modify your behavior, just even when you're in public. Uh, it certainly did. We're always different than we are in private and in, in private, uh, it, it gives us an important opportunity to grow and examine ourselves. Um, in addition, though, uh, and I, I think this is this is really important, is that, you know, surveillance is a it's really a prerequisite to control. It really is a prerequisite to authoritarianism. Um, and so as long as surveillance is on the table, authoritarianism is only one leader, uh, uh, you know, one one event away. Um, and so as long as we have privacy that's available as an option, and that's our attitude at Offshift, just to have privacy available. It's an it's, it's one click away, a one-stop, one-click opt-out from the public domain, then people have that choice and authoritarianism is, is really further at bay. Let's face it, we've all gotten burned by crypto at one point. I mean, I know I have, right? One day you're up 167% or whatever, and the next day you're deep in the red. But remember, great investors know when to reinvest their gains. And this may shock you, but many elite crypto whales are reinvesting their gains into an unexpected alternative asset, and that's blue chip art. So from 1995 to 2021, blue chip art prices outpaced the S&P 500 by 164%. And this could explain why a crypto billionaire recently invested hundreds of millions of dollars into physical art. And even if you aren't flushed with you know, Bitcoin billions, well, you can still diversify with art like those guys, all right? And with Masterworks, the revolutionary investing app, 
you can actually invest in art. You can invest in a Warhol or a Banksy, for instance, all for less than a tenth of a Bitcoin. Sounds like a good deal, right? And for a limited time, they're giving Crypto 101 listeners a special offer. And to find out what that special offer is, head to masterworks.io slash crypto 101. Again, that's www.masterworks.io slash crypto 101. It's important as well to see the important regulation A disclosures at masterworks.io slash CD. And we're going to put that in the show notes as well. I guess if we, because I want to touch on just the concept of like how, right? How is this all possible? And I know it's probably some complicated cryptography, but can you give us the 101 version? Yeah, um, it's some complicated cryptography. Uh, <laughs> all right, next question. <laughs> <laughs> some super complicated cryptography. Um, yeah, to be honest, because a lot of people ask us like, you know, what, who are your competitors in this space? And there, there are a lot of other people building brilliant privacy solutions and, and you know, power to them and definitely not disparaging other people that value privacy. But we don't have anyone that's really doing the same thing as, as Offship, which is building an on-chain privacy solution. That means on Ethereum layer one. Um, and on Offshift, you can burn the native token XFT and you can mint these ZK assets, which are inherently, they're, we call them confidential tokens, but they're, they're mirrored, they're synthetics that mirror other assets, BTC, ETH, USD, fiat currencies, commodities, real world assets, crypto native assets, whatever. Um, and you can be fully private while being fully on chain. You know, as we say, no ifs, ends, or bridges, you never leave Ethereum. <clears throat> you don't go onto any layer twos, no rollups, nothing like that, no relayers. So... The challenge there, and the reason why a lot of people haven't really been able to do that, is because Ethereum uses what's called an, an account-based transaction model. Um, and most privacy-centric systems uh, are built on UTXO models, like Bitcoin, for example. And on a UTXO model, which stands for unspent transaction output, you just have these lists of transactions on the ledger. From one address to another, this, this many Bitcoin, this many coins, this many tokens were sent. And so if you can simply shield or obfuscate that data, then you can create a very quite easily a private system because all of the concepts like account balances and things like that are being handled by higher levels of abstraction, like, for example, like a wallet application or a block explorer, something like that. But on Ethereum in an account-based model, which is important for state saving, in other words, DeFi applications definitely benefit or actually almost require an account-based model, uh, you have this concept of an account that's at the core protocol layer. So simply obfuscating the transactions is rather is, is not going to suffice. So on our model, we use sort of a hybrid between the UTXOs and the account-based model. Um, which is a bit more to explain, but essentially they are what are called cryptographic commitments, which are exchanged between these accounts. Um, and to go into any further depth, I would probably um, take up a lot of time, but I also would probably want someone on the team with a really deep technical background or one of our cryptographers to go any deeper than that. Yeah, no, that, that that's cool. Basically what it sounds like to me is like you could convert your token, your XFT, was that right? That's XFT correct. XFT tokens, you could burn that as gas essentially to mint uh, a, a, a private uh, digital asset? Is it like an ERC-20? So yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're not you're not using it as gas though because I mean, it's a one-to-one, -one, right? You're just burning it and minting the same amount, the okay. same value. You're still going to be using Ethereum for gas. Gotcha. And, and so uh, I guess the one of my other questions was the cost associated with, you know, kind of getting into the off-shift ecosystem 
the cost would just be whatever gas fees for Ethereum are at that time. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, as the famous saying goes, there's no such thing as a free zero knowledge lunch. So uh, we, <laughs> bulletproof ZK proofs are the secret sauce. That, and then Z, zero knowledge proofs are by and far one of the biggest, I think, one of like the most exciting sort of emergent themes for 2022 and beyond as far as what they can offer for scalability and privacy. Mm-hmm. So obviously they're computationally intensive. We use bulletproof ZK proofs, but yeah, there, there's a cost to be paid there for the privacy. And then of course the Ethereum gas fees. So as we sort of say it, it's uh, it is it can be pricey certainly, but that is the cost of decentralized privacy that's on chain in 2022. You know, it's kind of like asking you know if you tried to send a video by email in 1999, it would probably take forever, and you'd say, well, it's not the technical solutions; it's just where the internet is at at this stage. Mm-hmm. These are our capabilities right now. So yeah, the cost will be what the cost is, um, and and hopefully you know Ethereum 2.0 and all of these questions will sort of sort themselves out. Yeah. What's uh what's the the high level go to market strategy for Offshift? Um, you know, are you guys looking to first and foremost uh, get liquidity for the token? Are you guys first and <laughs> foremost looking for other partners to leverage the product? Well, I mean, for liquidity is certainly a top priority for us. We just extended our LP rewards programs on Sushi Swap and Pancake Swap, and because of the way our tokenomics function, as I've spoken a lot about, um, you can anyone can look into the at Denver talk I gave uh, quite recently where we talk about our tokenomics and the imperative of liquidity for, for the tokenomic model that we use. Um, but I think that, you know, as far as we're, we're launching our mainnet very, very, very soon. So that's really exciting. And it's, it's, it's really a huge milestone for the Ethereum community in general, for a cryptocurrency in general, to have on-chain privacy. We're really augmenting a, a key technical component to the Ethereum core protocol. So uh, we're excited about that. And people in the privacy community are certainly excited about that. Uh, beyond that, once we have these ZK assets, uh, live, so to speak, on mainnet. I think that's when, as someone who's, I'm really the BD guy, uh, that's when my life starts to get a lot more exciting. Um, rather than just writing off ads and doing AMAs and things, you know, get out there and say, yeah, what can we do with these ZK assets, you know? Um, and, and, you know, can we, whether it's building privacy-centric applications that integrate them, whether it's uh, getting out to existing, you know, public incumbents in the DeFi space, um, and how can these be integrated? What does that look like technically? That's when you get some really good technical minds together, and I think it'll be really exciting to see what comes next. Okay, here, here's one question that uh, I kind of have first first comes to mind is, who's your dream partner? Like, what would be the dream partnership for Offshift that would take you to... Uh, you know, maybe the next level, maybe, you know, kind of come to my <laughs> mind, MakerDAO, right? That could be a, a cool partnership, uh, you know, obfuscating, you know, some of, some of the, uh, the on-chain sort of NFTs that they have so that people yeah. could, you know, uh, operate in that ecosystem without leaving, you know, a footprint that could get analyzed by their competitors, for instance. Um, is there anything that like you've been really, you know, chewing on these days? No comment. No. Um, uh, <laughs> Don't want to give anything away, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I will say that from the events that, uh, you know, especially at Denver recently and, and talking to a lot of other projects in the space that are, you know, some of the what I would call blue chip DeFi platforms. Uh, I am very excited to see what we can do. But again, like mainnet has to be live. Yeah. And that's why I don't want to speculate. And that's why I don't want to name any names. But I think they really are just, you know, uh, you know, within arm's reach at this point for us because we've, we've had those conversations. Um, but yeah, m- more importantly, that stuff needs to go live. I mean, one thing I will say that one of our existing partnerships, or I wouldn't call it a partnership, but, you know, we, we are live on um, Moon River as well, which is... Oh, yeah. Cool. Uh, the Polkadot thing, yeah. right? Yeah, it's, it's a Kusama's... Yeah, it's Moonbeam's Kusama iteration. So they're, they're um, you know, 
EVM compatible parachain, um, which is, you know, to us, like, we don't want to compromise and decentralization ever. Otherwise, we're just moving backwards. You know, if you, if you want a really fast solution, just go ahead and use Visa. So to mm -hmm. us, um, Moon River was a really good opportunity for us to give traders that prefer a low cost environment uh, an opportunity to use our platform. So we are happy to be launching there as well so that, you know, it'll, for, for cost conscious traders, there, there is an opportunity to participate. So, so when you were at ETH Denver, you know, largest Ethereum hackathon in the world, uh, what were some of the other kind of key trends or, you know, like you're, you guys are building PriFi, that's a really key trend. Were there any other standout, you know, you don't need to name names of the projects, but just standout ideas that you're like, you know, we're in a kind of a bear market period. When we come out of this, those guys, that's going to be a hot sort of trend. Yeah, yeah, there was. Um, and, and, you know, this actually was, there was an event going on simultaneously, which was affiliated with that Denver called Dow Denver. Um, and I believe they're actually getting together now a, a sort of like, uh, like sort of how you see F Portland, you see F Lisbon, you see there's sort of like a Dow thing like that forming where there's like a, a quite a movement of um, like some sort of series of international events or things around Dow's, uh, particularly I think within the Ethereum community, but it may expand. Um, but I did give a talk at Dow Denver as well. Um, and uh, I have to say that I, I didn't quite realize because at Offshift, we do have a community DAO that we're building and that has already made at least one, one minor decision for us. Um, and really DAOs are the future of how, if there's going to be any element of governance, any whatsoever, uh, then a DAO is really, you want at least your community to have some sort of you know, decentralized infrastructure by which they can make decisions and contribute. Um, and so I think DAOs are, I did not realize how many DAOs are out there and how many sort of DAO projects are emerging. Um, because I've been so focused on DeFi and in particular PriFi, um, where it's sort of like coming from this anarcho-capitalist PriFi purism angle, which is no governments, uh, no central banks, no no governance whatsoever. But there are people who say, yeah, yeah, we 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 want to have decentralized systems, but we there may be some element of governance. Like MakerDAO, as you mentioned, is being being one of the best examples. People don't vote on you know how there's there's no real you know overarching governance. It's just based what are the insurance rates that we want to have on the protocol? What are some assets that we want to support? What are some assets we don't want to support? You want those decisions to be made by the community. And and DAO infrastructure, I think, is in its very early stages, but there's a lot of room for innovation there that's on the way. Yeah, I'm excited for that kind of stuff. Um, I guess kind of to, to round things out, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask your opinion on uh, just the state of, you know, regulation um, and, you know, of course, uh, everything going on, you know, with BlockFi getting sued by the SEC, um, you know, Ripple maybe kind of showing a little bit of a stand against the SEC in recent court proceedings. That's kind of a new development. Do you, do you think that like, you know, Offshift, um has any regulatory headwinds or privacy coins in general? Uh... No comment. No, uh, <laughs> you're bringing the yeah, you're bringing the questions. I bringing like. the heat, baby. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the most like the most recent, like the biggest like recent event was the um, executive order from the Biden administration. Yeah, seemed pretty supportive. It did. It did. I mean, uh, like for the most part, yeah. And but I mean, there were six big areas of focus, and one was about making the U.S. like a competitive, you know, environment for innovation in the crypto space. But there were two others which really stood out. One was illicit activity, uh, and the second was inclusion. And you know, this is where we run into the same issue every time, which is that the best intentions of regulators. This is where we run into. And we talked about this in the beginning of the talk, but it's so important. How can you really have these two sort of twin objectives? which and how for how long can you have these two twin objectives before they start to conflict uh, you're trying to prevent 
uh, illicit activity. The only way to do that is by monitoring, and that requires surveillance. You have to see the illicit activity to be able to prevent it in most situations. Um, and you can see that they also want this element of inclusion. So assuming we're operating in, in a sort of innocent until proven guilty system, like you'd really like us to continue operating in that way for everyone's sake. Um, if you're just doing something in a privacy-centric environment, uh, and you're all of a sudden, you know, attacked for doing that, or you're, you're put on some list or whatever, um, uh, or that that system gets attacked by regulators first, those privacy centric systems. Um, yeah, then you're then you're kind of cutting into the inclusivity and openness that the Web3 space and certainly cryptocurrency were supposed to be about since day one. So I think that's really the biggest challenge for regulators um, and for all of us operating in the space, which is that, yeah, let's remain true to the core founding principles of crypto. I mean, the word crypto comes from encryption, which is all about privacy. And that's really what the space <laughs> right. is founded on. Um, even if it's pseudonymous, it's still better than nothing. But yeah, you'd like it to be fully anonymous. And um, I think yeah, that's really like the big fight that that we're for at Offshift. One, that's the one big point is that, yeah, the, the pursuit of preventing illicit activity cannot conflict with the prerogative of inclusivity and openness and the freedom to transact openly, or at least privately also, but the freedom to transact as you wish, as long as you're not committing any crimes or, or committing violence to others. The second piece there, um, is that, and I think it's about to escape my mind, um, is that, uh, oh yeah, it did, I just dropped it. But either way, um, in any event, um, <clears throat> like for us, as, as far as like, oh, just remembered it, great. There we go, um, bringing them this, back. This, yeah, the second piece is what I, what I, <laughs> the second piece is what I mentioned before, I gotta say it before I forget again, um, the, is, is like the key really to preventing, to like creating a robust censorship resistant system is to having it fully decentralized. Mm -hmm. And when you have a core team that's behind a project, that core team can be targeted. Uh, and so that's where a lot of these even great DeFi protocols, even if the DeFi protocol has a DAO and the DAO is telling the dev team what to do, you still have this centralized point of failure. And in a, in a, in a sense, a politician is a centralized point of failure, any kind of like any kind of authority. So for us, like we're focused on, yeah, right now we have a core team to set things up and to, to get the ball rolling. But yeah, our goal is to create a DAO in a really well-educated and well-informed community so that the platform runs itself. That's that's really where I think every privacy centric system should be aiming to get to. Uh, you don't want to have a core team where no matter how private the protocol is, you know, they, you know, if you have a team, you have you have, you know, a, a crosshairs, you can, you know, that can be put there uh, for better or worse. Yeah. So uh, DAOs, DAOs are a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I definitely second exactly what you're saying. I think DAOs Decentralized Autonomous Organization, DAO, for anybody who wants to go Google that at home or search our list of podcasts where we've done in the past. Uh, I think that's going to be a huge trend. It's going to be kind of what, what really brings to the forefront that, you know, we as, as people, right, can take back control of, of governance a little. I think, you know, we've gone a little far, far, far down the path uh, in terms of how federal government and, and state governments are operating. And I think kind of relocalizing that into uh into communities that that you know were act you know were, were active parts of uh and kind of relocalizing that into you know the money and and the sort of uh you know sh kind of shareholder-esque value that we share in uh in one protocol i think that is going to be the future so um i'm excited that you you kind of brought that up and and now before we we'll let you go um you know as, as crypto 101 you know we have all sorts of brand new listeners on the show uh, what's just one word of advice from, from a crypto veteran, uh, you know, to, to help these people on their way? Ah, okay. This is really important. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
if you are investing in the space, and this is not investment advice per se, but if you are involved in the space, I mean, cryptocurrency really is the internet for wealth and money uh, and, and value. So there's no way to get, there's no way to avoid participating in cryptocurrency without getting your wealth involved really at the end of the day. Um, even, even, and especially in DAOs, which require, you know, yeah. so as you are getting involved in the space, um, there's a book that I would recommend people read, um, which is called uh, Trading in the Zone. It's by a guy named Mark Douglas. Yeah, it's a great um, one. You read that book? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, dude. No way. Straight up. Man. Yep. Oh, man, we should we should we should uh, go get some coffee after this. I don't yeah, know. absolutely. <laughs> Mark Douglas is the man. He is the man. That guy is absolutely the man. Yeah. So, I mean, for every person out there that you've heard about who's become a crypto millionaire, there are probably a hundred people who lost everything in crypto, but they're probably not posting about it on Twitter. Bingo. So it's really important to understand because there are some really difficult uh, experiences that you can have losing everything you own or a large amount of it more than you expected to in a space that is extremely volatile and extremely nascent. Um, and so the, the kinds of mistakes that you'll make will have nothing to do with technical knowledge, nothing to do with technical analysis. They'll have absolutely nothing to do with your understanding of markets or technologies, but they're sort of your own familiarity or lack of familiarity with your own internal emotional environment. Um, and becoming aware of that as a trader, as he calls it a trader, but in, in this kind of paradigm, in this kind of situation, um, <clears throat> It's, it's more just about any kind of time you're interacting with value and wealth. Mm -hmm. um, and and there's, there's a particular anecdote which he shares, which I would like to share, which is where there is one trader who is very, he, he loses a lot, but he's then working in some kind of brokerage or some firm. And the boss gives him an opportunity to come trade with him or sit beside him during the day. And they're looking at, I believe it's soybean futures contracts. <laughs> <clears throat> And at this time, his book's written in the 80s, I believe, or 90s. Yeah, Actually, it's really. year 2000. But yeah, he, he's sitting beside the boss, and he's talking about support and resistance levels to the boss. And the price of soybean futures, or futures contracts, something along these lines, is ticking down to the, to the support level. And the boss says, it's at the support level. Does that mean it's not going to go any lower? And he says, absolutely not. This is the lowest price of the day. So the boss gets on the phone because that's what they did back then. And he calls up and he said, I'd like to sell a huge amount of soybean contracts and the price dips below. And the boss says, that's bullshit. Uh, that's what he <laughs> says to him right there. And it's sort of like, it's such a great lesson because the guy is looking at it in horror where he's like, that's a support level you're supposed to buy. But the point is that that's all it takes one person in the market who disagrees with you to, to sort of prove you wrong. Um, and so anything anything can happen. Every moment in the market is unique. You do not know what's going to happen in the future. Your favorite influencer does not know what's going to happen in the future. I definitely don't know what's going to happen next in the future. And you have to operate from a probabilistic, uncertain place if you want to retain, um, retain or grow your wealth. So it's really important to understand that lesson. That's why I recommend the book to everyone. Yeah. And that's so great. I'm glad that you brought that up. Uh, one of the, the big takeaways from that book for me, it was just the understanding that logic and emotion generally never occupy the brain at the same time. And so if you could identify in yourself and be aware when you're being hyper emotional, whether that's hyper fearful or hyper greedy and being able to counter trade that um, is fantastic. And even I've applied it to my personal life, right? When I'm feeling heated in an argument, um, you know, just being like, okay, 
I feel that that heat in my gut right now. My fists are clenched. I'm feeling maybe a little, you know, unfairly, you know, target or whatever. Um, and then be like, okay, well, I'm not thinking logically. You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking irrationally with emotion. So let me step back, take a walk, get some logic flowing through the brain. Um, and that's how you have to make your trading and investment decisions. So uh, Alex, that was great. Great way to close the, cl- close the, uh, the episode here. Uh, if people want to find out more about Offshift, where are we pointing them? Do you like Discord? You guys, big Telegram guys, Twitter. I mean, you definitely find us on uh, at uh, Offshift XFT on Twitter or Alex Ship XFT on Twitter. Um, but you know, yeah, our Telegram, our Telegram, uh, you can find us Offshift.io. If you go there, then you'll see all of our socials. Telegram and Discord both are big for us. Uh, those will be our two biggest. Yeah. Great stuff, Alex Ship Offshift. Thank you so much for coming on, and we'll uh, we'll bring you back on when Mainnet gets launched. All right. I can't wait. Yeah. Sounds good. All right, everybody at home listening, stay tuned. Uh, we'll be back with some more guests later this week. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.